vision and graft, a creative's career and mental well-being companion. Hey, welcome to Vision and Graft. I'm Richard William Preisner. You're listening to episode three, and I, for one, am impressed that I've got this far. I'm really excited to share with you today's conversation with Karen Sandoval Engler. She's a Mexican actress based in the US, and I've known her as a friend and creative collaborator for years. As mates, we've spent hours chatting on the phone together, working through problems, and Karen always leaves me feeling positive and uplifted at the end of our chats. That's why I felt she'd be an ideal guest for Vision and Graft, and I'm sure you'll get the same lift whilst listening to our conversation. Karen is best known for playing the character Laura in the TV series, and you'll have to excuse my Spanish accent, El Señor de los Cielos, which means Lord of the Skies. She's performed in other TV series, as well as many other projects, including feature films and short films, which is where I know her from. Our conversation is wide-ranging and covers many topics, so I've broken it down into different parts. I'll share with you those different parts over time. In this episode, we start the conversation discussing how we met, we reflect on the impact of the podcast, we go on to discuss bravery and creativity in life, we discuss the power of vulnerability, and starting a creative journey at a young age. Finally, we share our experiences collaborating with editors, and onto the merits of embracing who you are instead of who you think you should be. It's an insightful conversation, and I'm grateful for Karen's willingness to talk openly with me. The benefit of us both talking openly and the impact it has on our friendship is clear to see. I hope you enjoy it. You and I met at Central School of Speech and Drama, which is where you were studying your master's. Yeah, I was studying my my acting for film. In London. Masters in London. And it was an amazing experience, but it was even more amazing how we met, where we met. We met on um on a feature film shoot for a film called The Befuddled Box of Betty Butterfin, um, directed by Janice Pugh. Um, and you were yeah. playing a role in that. I can't remember what your character was. I called. was Sister Anne. Sister Anne, yeah, that was it. And I was a camera assistant. Yes. Working for um Charlie Mayer, the DP, and Oliver Cross, who was focus pulling on that job. And it was a really cool like a way to get to know each other because we were literally in location for I don't remember how many days how many days was that it was like three weeks I think like we were in Wales for one week and two weeks we were in Kent I think like we were by we we're by the sea and it was freezing it was like this amazing camp of creative people and I I, I don't know I really enjoy it it's like making a film in a prison <laughs> like you couldn't leave but it also made it really special like every single moment of that shoot shooting and time off we were all together i remember i remember like buying water pistols and like chasing people around the campsite there's all sorts of weird stuff went on on that shoot but it was great like i mean it was a great way to make friends with people Um, but that was like eight years ago in i think it was 2013 um in april may and then you helped me doing hashtag disconnected that was the first thing that i directed an act in it but it was a short. So that was really cool as well because we had the opportunity to like co-create together. We sort of became friends out of shooting Disconnected and then getting to know each other over the last few years and especially even over the last year, like virtually. I feel like our friendships definitely developed 
even more, which is, it's an odd thing that. That's really cool though. I think like that, the cool thing about um, our friendship is that we know we, we've been there for each other and, you know, it's so cool that no matter the distance, no matter where, which side of the pond we are, like we are, we are connected. <laughs> Isn't that a Backstreet Boys lyric that no matter the distance? Oh, no matter uh, the distance. Yeah. Which song was that? Yeah, you are my fire. <laughs> What's the song though? I can't remember. Probably my subconscious had it and just came out like that, you know? You never know where the line is coming from. Now I want to listen to Backstreet Boys. <laughs> hopefully, ho hopefully what it, I, uh, I wish what would have come out would have been like quoting like a literary like author. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, quoting Backstreet Boys. It's, it's I, want, I want it that way. <laughs> Tell me why. I should have just come in with that, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every time, every time I want like more information in this conversation, I'll just be like, "Tell me why." <laughs> How did you find the first podcast? By the way, obviously, it's a bit intense. I told you that it was so beautiful, like for me to hear you that vulnerable. Like, it's so brave. And I think there's not enough people that is brave in the world, you know, just to come out and and say to the world, I'm a human being and I have feelings inside of like this flesh and this way we are human, you know, and we are we're vulnerable. So for me, it was so powerful to to hear you um, transparent and open. And I heard it really late at night. Because I was not being able to sleep, you know, I had like a, a rough night on, on my sleeping patterns. And I was like, okay, maybe this is the moment I'm going to hear the podcast. And I heard it and I was like, I'm not by myself. That is really special because obviously you touched me like in a much more higher level because I know you and hear you that vulnerable. It was also personal. So it turned me up like hearing you so open and vulnerable and brave and at the same time and excite me that you were doing what well, i'm noticing since that first episode is that like it, it, i definitely feel stronger now because i've just let out all of the what i thought was weakness like there's nothing anyone can come at me with that's worse than that i feel like i can't be attacked in the same way now because I'm, I've let that out. I've given the most vulnerable thing I could possibly give. So it's just given me a sort of strength as a result of it. It's really hard to explain, but I feel more confident as a result of it. And, and also it's just a relief too. To be honest though, I felt like more anxious than I've ever felt in the, in the three days it was being released. I'm not an anxious person, but I was so anxious. It was just like intense. I couldn't sleep. Because I was just like, I've ruined my life, you know, <laughs> it's like I've completely ruined my life. And then I know it was irrational, but I was just like, that's it. It's over. Like, you know, I was like, no one's ever, no, no girl's ever going to be interested in me again. No, uh, no one's going to want to hire me. Got to, got to all the DMs like fl flooding up. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, I got a lot of, a lot of feedback from people, which was really nice. I love how you're turning pain into power. 
And I think that's like the beauty of it. You know, I think as any artist do, I think we connect to, to that vulnerability. I think that at some point we, we, we spoke about, about paintings, right? And you, you told me uh, about this painting that really mo moved you and you could understand it at that moment in time. And I think that with any sort of artistic form, I think why so beautifully powerful is that in that moment where while you're watching that painting or you're you're in in the theater and you're watching a play you're so vulnerable because you're letting yourself be open and i think we are all looking for the same thing we're looking for to be loved to be part of something bigger and to be happy you know and i think we all connect to that and we all in some sort of different aspects in our life maybe it was not exactly the same experience that you you had but we we all had like a vulnerable moment where where that has happened and i think i just i just love what is happening right now and i i, I love how it's evolutioning it's a big change for me to be kind of putting myself out there but i read something before starting the podcast that said anything that you do creatively should lead with vulnerability because if you do, like, you, you're going to get more out of it. Like, you're going to create better work as a result of it. Like, because you're going to be pouring emotion in. And like, we talked before, like, I, I honestly believe that you can't really make good artistic work without pouring your emotion in. It, it It's lifeless and sort of dead if you don't. I just felt like, well, what's the most vulnerable thing I could possibly do? And it was obviously, like, talk about depression and talk about how it's affected me. I saw a video um, someone actually sent to me straight after recording that first podcast of another guy who was walking and talking about how he has depression or I think anxiety, sorry, because he talks about it openly and people say that he's brave. You know, and I had a lot of this, like a lot of people were like, oh, you're so brave to do that. And he said that he sort of wishes that it wasn't brave. He's like, right now it's only brave because it's brave to talk about your mental you know, mental health problems or uh, any kind of struggles you go through because it's out of the ordinary as society sees it. But in an ideal world in his head, we should just be able to say, you know, you struggle in this way, you, sh you, you know, you have anxiety, you have depression, and it's normal, it's as normal as someone who doesn't have it. Everybody goes through times where they're like on cloud nine and very happy. And then the next minute, they're feeling really low. So, you know, whether you've got something diagnosed or not, everyone still goes through that. And I think it should just be like accepted. The problem is on social media and whatever, you just see in the idealized version of what that person could be. And it's not like a, it's not a real version. And I think I want to kind of show a real vulnerable version of me online um, because I don't want to create a fake version of me. I think that would be detrimental to my mental health in the long term. It's something that's important to me now. Like it wasn't important to me like two weeks ago. You know, I realized like, the strength in being genuine for myself and being honest to myself. And yeah, I'm, I'm proud of how the first podcast has gone and how the response has been. You know, it's, I mean, some people came at me with all sorts of emotion, like crying and uh, all sorts of things, you know, which I was just sort of shocked that it, it moved some people and it had an effect in such a strong way, you know? Um, and 
yeah i'm just i'm just proud that i managed to like make something that people like enjoyed listening to and got something from people should be just able to talk about these you know like is is the fact that we cannot see it i think that's what it makes it difficult we cannot see our mentality we can just experience it we are such in a in a place in in a moment in the world where everything is about seeing and i think we're right now in that shift that finally people is getting to feel more you know after these massive thing that 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 has happened in the world i think i think finally people is letting themselves feel and listen as well exactly so i think you know it's so easy to talk about dental health you know because you see your teeth if it's really like rotten you will see it if it's like yellow or or there's something wrong going on you will see it if people could see mental health then it would be a nor a normality to talk about it you know oh you're going to the dentist nobody does like a massive thing because you're going to the dentist you know what i mean everyone goes through these phases you know and it doesn't matter uh, what is the experience behind it the important thing is talk about it and that you're not alone the thing with that that first podcast as well was i want it to be sort of like i'm being strong in doing this you know although sad emotions come talking about that in that context and you could probably tell by the tone of my voice there's some stuff that like even me talking about it i find it difficult i don't think it should warrant pity or anything like that because it's like talking about it and getting to that stage for me is part of moving through it when you open then you 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 build this bridge for whoever that is in the other side listening to open themselves to that's what the world needs more the world needs to be open and understand that there's unity in vulnerability and there's really we're all experiencing this thing at the same time and like nobody really knows how to deal with it you know with things when you hear someone else you realize that even though that it has not been the same experience it mirrors and it's so beautiful to see that we are all capable to do that but what people is not capable to do is to be brave enough to be open and i think what you're creating right now is this space to people to be open and i i think that's why i keep on repeating it's so beautiful oh, thank you <laughs> following on with what you were just saying there as well i've noticed that the feedback that i have had from people and the and the contacts i've had from people they've very quickly opened up with me about their own experiences for people that i don't know very well or um, as well as friends that I've not really at all had those conversations with. That idea of like leading with vulnerability, it encouraged trust instantly. It was like you saying about building bridges. It's like that bridge is also like trust. They can come at me, be vulnerable with me and know because I've been vulnerable, I'm not going to abuse their trust. I'm not going to use that thing against them or tell other people or I suppose I've I've laid the groundwork for being willing to be open to attack. All these ideas that we've grown up, grown up listening, you have to be tough to survive in the jungle and all these things that you hear. But if people 
didn't have those ideas in their mind. People would be free. People would be free to, to, to leave like empathy to be the right response. I do believe that society is able to rearrange the way we think about ourselves if people would decide like we are deciding right now to have these conversations. But it's a decision. Not everyone is there to open up. And it would be beautiful to like just be in a world where everyone is open and we're able to just be who we are and feel what we're feeling and not cover up, you know, be completely bare to receive and give at the same time. Part of the issue with dealing with issues with your mental health, I think, like depression for me, has been knowing the society's stigma. You're not just dealing with depression, you're dealing with shame. It's this sort of like you're an outsider or an outcast or the sheer amount of people that go through these things. It's massive. And so it must be normal to some extent. You know, in the last podcast, I spoke about um, a lot of statistics. I think it was like one in four people experience mental health problems in their life. Like one in four. It's like how many billions of people is that? It feels good to speak about something that for me is normal. Seeing myself as like not normal or weird was part of the problem. You feeling like an outcast and then feeling like, why are you feeling these feelings? Your mind, instead of like stopping, just spirals down instead of spiraling up. It should be almost like, you know, I'm feeling down and like people would just connect immediately to that. And but it's this idea of like not talking about these moments, only talking about the beautiful moments. Being vulnerable and be, you know, putting, you, putting yourself out there in that way, for me, has started, it feels to create that spiral in the opposite direction. Like that's the catalyst for going the other way, as opposed to hiding it and feeling shame. That you say you want to try and create that spiral up because that's how, for me, I, I imagine it can be part of a sort of improvement in my life. And I feel like I'm on a bit of a path to that at the moment anyway, like it's sort of what I'm hell bent on doing. I, re I remember you talking to me and telling me that you started acting quite young. Yes. Um, and I, I believe you were seven years old when you did your first ever, ever professional acting job. Um, what a I, great memory you have. Will. It's not memory. I've also got the power of the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't tell anyone. And I was wondering what it was that drew you to performing um, at such a young age, like when did you decide you wanted to be an actress or how did that happen? Because it's obviously quite young to, to begin and get into it professionally. As a kid, I just loved playing. And I think I'm still a kid at core because I still love playing. It never went away. At seven, I started like professionally because I saw like uh, a commercial saying like, if you're between six and 12 years old and you like dancing and singing, go to this like stadium is going to be a, a, a casting to be in at that time. I think it was going to be a soap opera, but the, the, the girl that I really like in a show that it was a singer, like a kid singer was going to be there. And I remember I told my mom, um, mom, like, I, I want to go and meet her. And like, I'm going to go and be with her, you know, and dance with her. You know, I couldn't wait for that. So basically 
I made my mom <laughs> go to this massive casting. The meeting was like at 8 a.m. in the morning and it was a massive stadium. It was like probably like 5,000, 8,000 people, you know, in the stadium. And we had no idea what it was. My mom was like, Karen, are you sure this is a thing? Because like there's a lot of people. But I did the casting and I danced and I, I ended up going to like the last round. And then they talked to my mom and they're like, she's really talented. Um, how old is she? She's seven years old. And they were like, what? At that time, I'm, I'm still tall, but I, I was a tall kid. <laughs> so they thought that I was 10 years old and they were casting for like a, a kid's um, soap, soap opera. And they were like, oh, we need like kids are in between like these ages. We need them to like travel around the country and uh, all these different things. So we, we prefer kids are in between 10 and 12. But there's also a school that is for acting that if she's interested, you, she could go and and do that, you know. So basically after that, my mom was like surprised. She was like, oh, my kid is talented. And I told my mom that I wanted to go like again and dance and sing and all these things. And um, I cast for for the kids school of acting at the same time, like I cast for like uh, a series that were looking for a kid that looked like me. It was Amigas y Rivales. It was a um, Mexican soap opera for teenagers, but they were looking for like the sister of one of the leading girls. And from there, it just evolved. And I really never noticed that the other kids were not doing the same because in my head, like every kid played. And really where, where I noticed that it was a real professional thing was when I was in my school and they said that I could stay in that school, but I, I should stop not going to school because like I would go every day and then two days in the week I would have to go and film. So they were like, this is not an acting school, you know, it's like a normal school. And the other kids are being like, why, why she can stop coming to, to classes and I don't. <laughs> You'd hate that at that age. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so basically my mom was like, Karen, look, um, now this is for real. Like if you want to keep on doing this, you're not going to be able to be in this school. And at that age, at eight years old, in that moment, I was like, no, mom, I love it. I knew that it was a massive decision, but the factor that my mom was giving me that power you know, at such a young age, making that decision to stop going to, to that school was like when I realized that it was something real. So that's how everything started. And from there, I just, I had the opportunity to, to, to be in really amazing projects. It's a lot of respect to give to you at that age to be like, you decide what's happening with your life. I know. And I, I'm so grateful with my mom because she, she, I always had her support, her love and her advice. And I just love that she she really like completely believed in me. Supportive parents can really, really make a difference. When I was younger, my, and my parents bought me a camera um, for like 200 pound, I think it was, or something like that, which is a lot of money back then. But obviously I couldn't access that sort of 
finance at that age and like to be able to just use this little handy cam to make films. It's also a responsibility to have something so expensive such a young age. Oh yeah, I broke it. <laughs> I broke the first one. Like um, I was making this video, a Snow Patrol like mock music video and I must have had like some like eight friends staying after school in school and we had permission. But this one teacher who wasn't my teacher didn't know that we had permission. So she comes bursting out of the English room. She went, what are you doing? Like shouts it. And I, and I like dropped the camera. I turned around and went mental at this teacher. I like went mental at her. I was like, what do you think we're doing here? Like, of course we've got permission. I was like, do you think I'm just set up a film shoot in the corridor without permission? <laughs> like, no, you were doing it gorilla style. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I've still, I've still got mates who were there who will probably laugh about remembering that moment because I just got super angry. But then... I went, um, I went home and told my dad and then we managed to get under the camera. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Because I was honestly devastated. I was like, I can't make films about this. It wasn't mobile phones or anything then. Like you, you didn't have video on your phone. So it was like, I'm, my one way to express myself like creatively because I couldn't draw or anything. It was like gone. Yeah, my, my parents being supportive. Like, I mean, my dad kind of rushed in and helped me there. Yeah, he, he was great. Like, my, I mean, mom and dad, they really um, made an effort. I imagine for your mum too, it's like a, a distant idea that becoming a career. I literally entered without knowing that it was a career. I just entered because I loved doing it. My mom saw that, that it was such a, a thing that I loved that she was like, I support you. And also like, I grew up with one parent, like just my mom, because my dad passed away when I was five. So I think that's so beautiful that she believed in me right since the beginning. The sort of insight it takes from a parent to know to to give you that option. Like it's just so much that comes from that learning for you as a kid to take responsibility and like, you know, make a decision about where you're going. It's yeah, it's it's really interesting. The funny thing is how much people talk to me about how like articulate they think I am. No, like, oh, you got you speak so well and so clearly and so fluently. And I'm like, no, that's editing. Fortunately, I've got like a film editing background. So it, it makes editing this, it, it works in my head. It's fun. Editing is fun. To be honest, I think of all of my filmmaking skills, if I'd worked on editing more than being a DP or anything else, I think I'd be a really good editor. I just didn't want to sit in dark rooms for the rest of my life. I know that's. That's the hard part. But for me, really, like when when I was directing, it's so amazing, the magic of like directing the actor and then directing the editor. Or arguing with him <laughs> or her. Exactly. Because it's just so, it's such a different game, you know, like getting like a performance out of someone and then getting the matching that you you had in your mind as well. But then, I mean, I've worked as an editor with a director before. And then as an editor, you're sort of trying to... To put your stamp. Not, not necessarily put my stamp. It's kind of the same as, as when I'm DP and trying to help the director to realize their vision. Sometimes they're not expressing that in the way that... that... So you're kind of like, I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say this, but why don't we try this technique or this this way of editing in order to say that it's kind of like if I work with a colorist, I'll, I'll I'll give more general terms of how I want it to look, as opposed to saying, 
move those dials there, do that, do that, do that. And I've got like a loose idea of Da Vinci's controls and whatever, but it's their job to kind of like interpret your emotions and how you're wanting it to feel, you know? Yeah. At the end, you cannot do everything yourself. That's why everyone like specializes on something. Editing is another like magic room. I think the magic happens in set and then in editing is like, you can make things that you don't even imagine. Memories of editing, like just weeks or days on end editing and like you'd get five minute breaks where you go out into the sunlight and you're just like you know your eyes are like oh you're like boom there's the world outside yeah yeah and just like oh yeah i forgot like i've been in there for five hours like just getting lost in this story you know um and then you're just like oh there's yeah there's other people and it's like it's it's night now and then it's becoming morning again my final year film at university i handed in on monday i started the final editing session on the Friday night and I just edited all the way through with like no sleep wow it was horrendous it needed to be finished and I was being like a crazy perfectionist I'd hate to watch that back now it'd probably just be terrible the mad thing was I saw Dizzy Rascal straight after I handed it in he was just driving down the road and he he stopped his car and I was just like Am I hallucinating? Because I've not slept for 48 or 72 hours. This is the effect of the dark room. <laughs> now, literally just a little video on Instagram that was about turning 30. And because a lot of my friends are like, oh my God, we're turning 30. I think the upside for me of turning 30, of just my experience of it so far, is how I don't care as much anymore in a positive way. I'm not like, oh my God, I need to succeed. I've got to succeed right now. Oh, look at these cinematographers. I'm not as good as them. Like I'm not Roger Deakins yet and I need to go there and I've got to just panic about it for 10 years. And then I've suddenly at 30 and I'm like, I don't care. The pressure is off. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I didn't do all the stuff I was supposed to do when I was in my 20s and so whatever. It's not like being careless. It's just like, I don't care. But age, like, I think is just literally a creation. So the world know where we are, but like really it's just in our mind. We should stop like putting like a culture of age. You should be this by this, by this time. Everyone has their own timing and their own path. Trying to get that mentality out of your head is just so difficult though. Because you're like, oh, I'm 30 and I've not done this I don't have an Aston Martin I don't if I was to go back to being 10 years old or 11 years old when I first like wanted to be a filmmaker and told them about my experiences if I could stand there and tell my younger self that I'd probably be like oh my god wow I was there like being 28 29 looking back on my life being miserable about it I know if I was a kid I'd be like wow like you managed to do that and I'm trying to look at it in that sort of childlike way a little bit more now just to sort of be like, wow, I, I did do that. And I did do that. And there's no reason to just show myself the negative version of my life when there's the positive versions much more interesting and stronger. It's a better read. Yes. Put the vo- volume up towards the positive way of like looking towards the world. <laughs> Think about it. We were all th- like, like kids. We would just hug each other when we need a hug. If if we would all like almost like turn the volume up towards our child that we all really like children, we just like dress up like older people. 
it feels like that's the sort of journey I'm personally on right now. It's like trying to reconnect with how I was when I was a child. And when you're a kid, you are vulnerable and you don't think through what the consequences of talking about your emotions are or your experiences. You just sort of do it and it comes naturally. And, you know, as you become a teenager and you get into your 20s, you develop this like, I need to stop doing this. I need to not talk to anyone. It's all yeah. weird. These nasty boys, the nasty boys enters. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I need to be cool. Like I've got to be cool. But yeah, I feel like I'm trying to undo that now and get back in touch with who I was when I was younger. You know, that is who I am. You know, not this sort of version of myself that I became in order to conform to what I thought was the right way of being. Um, you know, a cinematographer has to be this and I would be like trying to mold my personality to fit what in my head was an idealized version of a cinematographer. That that has been like a lot of like my problems. My problem has been the opposite. A lot of people would tell me like, oh, Karen, like you should dress more like this, more like you're not like like this or like that, or you should like show more or show less or like, you know, you should. And I was always like, no you've gone to people and they've advised you to essentially behave in the opposite way to how you're behaving or dress in the opposite way to how you're dressing yeah and all these voices at the same time it's like whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. am i should i is that something that actors across the board have people commenting on them in that way as an actor you you're betraying always something something else right you're you're portraying a different character so you you're used to mold sometimes it's really difficult when this person that comes in and is like really upbeat and then suddenly becomes this mellow crying person is more like a, a shock i've had many times during life where people would be like oh karen you should smile less you know you should smile less you should do this or that and in my head i would be like but then i wouldn't be me is this something that people would sort of say when you were younger when i was younger i think because of my age like being in my early 20s I had people who felt that they could be really forthcoming with advice in inverted commas about how i should present myself i had one director lecture me via an email when I, uh, I dared to charge mileage on a job that I'd done, which, you know, I charged mileage for my car. It kind of irritated him that I charged him mileage for some reason, um, even though we discussed it previously. And he just let loose on me about like how I should be presenting myself to him, how I should be calling him sir, how, I, you know, I should be showing him like ultimate respect. I shouldn't question him and I shouldn't question older people and older directors. Like I should know my place, you know? The certain people feel like they can they can get away with doing that when you're that age because you know you're young so it doesn't matter now reaching your 30s i found the rate of people behaving with me in that way has just dropped considerably because i can stand up for myself now but the problem is the most damage is done when you are younger you're more impressionable then. If someone was to say that to me now, I know myself much better now. I'd just be like, yeah, whatever. Like it would bounce off me. But when I was 21, I was sensitive. I was learning. I was trying to find my path. And I was being really considerate. And for someone to come at you with aggression, you're sensitive and it really affects you. Like it really knocked me for a long time when someone came at me in that way. That's where the damage is done. And then you're spending years trying to 
undo that or are you questioning yourself question like wait like what's the right way like is that the right way is that the is that the way that things go or the wait wait what i don't feel there's one way i think there's a path for everyone well the way is you karen that's the thing the way is who you are this is what i'm learning with this podcast the way for me is expressing who i am with this podcast you know, I feel that the way for us all is to just embrace who we are and not be told how our personalities should be from the outside. And the people who love us embrace our personalities for what they are and the people that matter. I'd personally never presume to tell someone to ha how to behave and lecture them on it or suggest for the benefit of their career they smile more or do something else arbitrary. You know, who are you doing that for? You're definitely not doing it for you, are you? And that's the person that you should be doing that for, for like lasting benefits. Yeah, and I, at the end, I think if you're 100% true to yourself, then that's 100% powerful. It'll come out as well. Like you, people will feel that, like in, in, it'll be feel genuine. And also what you were saying, that people that will like match that vibration and match that type of communication is gonna understand it before it was so hard for me to understand it and now i i love that i'm like yeah if people like this person that i am they like it you know and they'll connect with you more exactly and if they don't they don't they will connect with someone that does connect with them for me like characters i feel like characters are so powerful in in a way that there's some moment like you can connect to a character immediately, but there's other moments that you have to work towards that connection because it's so far away. You have to work and build it up and really study that character. But I think in life, the, the, the most powerful thing that you can do is be 100% true to yourself. And that's going to lead you to your perfect own path because there's not one way to doing things. I think learning to do what you're saying as well, to get to the point of embracing yourself in, in, a, in a true sense and kind of expressing that outwardly, I think that I think that it requires you to drop caring about everybody liking you. For me anyway, like uh, um, I, I felt that I've needed to stop caring about that because I've cared way too much about pleasing everyone. And that's when you get lost in noise in your head about should I be doing this should I be doing this should I be doing this and you're thinking too much about trying to please the crowd as opposed to pleasing the people that matter or pleasing what is true to yourself for me in the past there's been a lot of damage done by caring too much about pleasing everybody and it's just it's impossible it's not about being a bad person, you know, like not about being selfish because you, you could turn that around and it could be a justification for being selfish or doing negative things. There, there should be another word to actually put the attention towards yourself. Well, it's like self-compassion. Exactly. That's such a beautiful word. Self-compassion. Well, I, di I didn't make that one up. I'm stealing it. But it's, yeah, it's like lo loving yourself in a way that's not self-obsessed. It's just accepting yourself. It's like, you know, you accept your best friend. You don't question 
their reality or who they are, do you? You you just accept them through the hour and you love them for who they are. And and you've got to have that exact same compassion towards yourself and inwardly in order to feel content. So there we go. I hope that you enjoyed that first part of our conversation. There'll be more to come in future from Karen and I, so be sure to have a listen. If you liked today's episode, then please subscribe. It's really easy to do on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts, as well as many other podcast platforms. It's on pretty much most of them worldwide now. Just search for Vision and Graft in your podcast app and click subscribe at the top of the screen. If you have the time to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, that will really help to support Vision and Graft immensely. And as an incentive for anyone who leaves a review and lets me know, I'll send them a limited edition Vision and Graft sticker with the design by Laura Heitzman. It can be put on equipment cases, notebooks, walls, car bumpers. I've got one stuck here to my printer. You name it, it'll stick to it. Just send me your address once you've written the review and I'll get it sent over to you. Unfortunately, this is only available in the UK. Any support will be much appreciated. You can get in touch and follow me at VisionGraft on Instagram and Twitter or at VisionGraft.com where you'll also find show notes and past episodes. With Vision and Graft, I'm looking to build a platform that benefits creatives with both their mental well-being and their career journeys. By showcasing how everybody, no matter what their success, experiences ups and downs in life, I want to help normalise the struggles that we face and be part of ending the stigma around discussing mental health challenges. If you think that Vision and Graph could be beneficial to your friends or family, then please do share it with them. You'll be supporting the podcasts and spreading the word, and I'll also be very appreciative. I'm always looking to improve, so any suggestions or feedback are welcome. Remember to stay in touch with mates and loved ones. Just a text or a call can make all the difference, and the benefits of talking openly and honestly with those you trust are immense. I know I feel much happier when I do that with my family or mates such as Karen. Thank you for listening to Vision and Graft, a creative's career and mental well-being companion. If talking's the cure, then creativity is the recovery. Take care. Find us online at visiongraft.com or on Instagram and Twitter at visiongraft.